Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant. I am Boyce Washington, and you will be hearing from just in just a minute to Pastor Richard Washington. We are a father and son team who has came to form the Science of the Covenant podcast. If you have any questions or comments while the podcast is live, you can email us your comment or your question at the science of the covenant at gmail.com. And we will try to get to your comment and your question. If you know, if you've been listening to us, you know, the pastor has been doing a series on the destiny of disobedience. It has been very interesting. And I'm personally have been learning a lot about why, we have on why we have been going through what we're going through, not only just African-Americans here in the United States, but also in other countries where we have been taken to. So I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. So pastor, what are we going to be dealing with today as we get into what part six? Am I right? Yes, that's correct, uh, part six. And what we want to do is uh, look at uh, servitude uh, today as we have been looking at it. And in our last discourse, we pointed out that when Elohim created Adam and Eve, he created them uh, to have dominion over the earth, but never dominion over man over man so we want to uh, continue with that concept but today we want to start with the second principle we know that man is not to dominate over man but there's another principle that uh, we, we want to look at and try to put this in perspective so let us uh, get ready to go into our subject and just prior to opening the word let us have a word of prayer. Eternal Father, we thank you that you have brought us through another week. Thank you for the blessings that you've given to us. Now, Father, as we close this week on your Shabbat, that we may give you the glory and the praise that you are due for the great blessings that you have bestowed upon thy children. And so now, as we embark upon your word, we ask that as we open your word, we may open our minds and our hearts to be able to receive the things which are given, that we may be the better for it. Bless me, bless my host, bless each listener, and most of all, bless what was transpiring in this service, that we may be able to discern the things that you would have us to discern, and those things that we discern would help us to get closer to your kingdom, is our prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay. I want to ask you to turn with me in the book of uh, Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, we want to uh, look at chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And we want to look at verses 39 to 43. So what we are attempting to do here is that, like I said, we looked at having dominion over the earth. Now we want to look at this second aspect. So when we consider servitude in the scriptures, there were basically two types of which Yah instructed Moses 
to exact upon those who were to be slaves. And we want to consider these two types of servitude found in Scripture. So when we read in Exodus chapter 25, considering verses 39 through 43, the Bible states uh, here uh, about servitude or slavery. Here in 39, we read, it says, And if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor, and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bond servant, but as an hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with thee, and thou shalt serve thee unto, and thou shalt serve uh, thee unto the year of jubilee, and then shall he depart from thee, both he and the children with him. And shall return unto his own family and unto the possession of his fathers shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold to bondmen. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear thy Elohim. So the first type of servitude is that of which Yahuwah had for his people Israel. And this is when both the master and the servant were both Israelites. An Israelite servant was not to be compelled to serve as a bond servant. In many instances, a bond servant was forced to do service and in some cases received no compensation for one service. An Israelite master was not to compel his brother Israelite to labor, nor to labor without any remuneration. They were to be as hired servants. They were to, be, they were to serve up until the Jubilee, and then they were to, be, they were to depart depart with and return unto their families and unto the possessions of their fathers. So he is saying here, when you take a fellow Israelite as a, a bond servant, not as a bond servant, but as a servant or a slave, you were not to oppress him and neither were was he to work uh, for naught. So let us understand the rationale of doing it this way. Okay, why did he do it this way? Okay, we want to look at two verses in Leviticus 25. And those verses are verses 42 and 43 of why uh, they were to uh, do this. So the philosophical reason for them not treating their fellow brother as a servant, as, they, uh, as a servant or a bond servant was, in verse 42, it says, for they are my servants. So he's, he's claiming them just as the master uh, was in the hand of Elohim. So was this his servant because they were both from the nation of Israel. And he says, for they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondmen. So... 
he is saying when his own people were down in Egypt and the way that they were treated, he is saying that they were his people then and they are his people now. And so when they would go down into slave, so when they would have slaves, they should not treat them as they were treated by the Egyptians. And then verse 43 goes on and says, Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear thy Elohim. So in other words, the rigor means harsh treatment of those in whom you have for servants. And he said, number one, the reason why you shouldn't uh, treat them harshly is, number one is, he said, they are my servants. And then he says, number two, that's how you were treated in Egypt, and you are not to treat them the way that, that you were treated down in Egypt. And number three is, he says, specifically, you shall not rule with rigor. Why? He said, because thou shalt fear the Lord thy Elohim. So the, for those three reasons, number one, because of the fact that they were his servants, they were not to be treated like they were in Egypt. And number three is because he told them specifically not to uh, rule them with rigor. He said, because I am Elohim, your Elohim. So he was saying that he was over both the master as well as the servant. Both of them were his servants. And, and as being such, they should have a humane treatment. So here we see that it was a reflection upon them when they were in Egypt and how they were treated under the pharaohs. Moreover, he also made it clear that they should not sell them for bondmen, nor to rule over them with harshness. So he is saying you can't sell them like they bondmen because they are my servants and they are not to be sold that way. So, so uh, Israel had a unique way of dealing with their servants because Elohim was pointing out to them the way their servitude should be. Now, in the same Leviticus chapter 25, we also want to look at verses 44 through 46. So let us consider those verses in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 through 46. And it says, Both thy bondmen and thy bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they beget, which they begat in your land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever, but over your brethren, the children of Israel, shall not rule, ye shall not rule one over another with rigor. Okay, so this is the second type of servitude. Now, the first servitude was with another fellow Israelite. Now, he has also given them instructions of how they should deal with, with servitude uh, of people of other nations or those who 
uh, were surrounded, they were surrounded by who were not Israelites, even the strangers. He was giving them a unique way of dealing with them as well. So the second type of servitude is that which Yah had for his people Israel and another nation. This is when the master is an Israelite and the servants of another nation. So here we are told that if in these verses that an Israelite could buy bondmen and bondmaids, he could buy them. Moreover, they could also buy strangers among them along with their families, and they would be their possession. Now, the bond servants were to be their inheritance, not only for their current generation, but for the future generations to come. The bond servants' time of service had no time restraints. They were to serve forever. At this juxtaposition, what we want to do is to ask the question about a non-Israelite slave owner. Were they under the same obligations to treat their servants in the same manner as an Israelite? Okay. So we, we want to look at that because uh, we're looking at how Israel is going to handle uh, servants which were not among them. And also we asked in a question, were the other nations uh, that had slaves, were they under the same obligation? Okay, now when we look, uh, stay right here in the book of Leviticus chapter 25, we we'll to look at uh, verse 10, Le Leviticus 25, 10. And here it states, And ye shall hallow the 15th, the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Okay, let's talk about the jubilee, which we were talking about when we talked about this uh, servitude of another Israelite, that at the time of jubilee, they were released. There was a time restraint, but we find that as we deal with uh, the servant of another nation, they were not to be released at Jubilee, and they it was a different set of uh, stipulations for them. Okay, now when we return back to uh, verses 39 to 43, we 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 looked at what we call the uh, the the hired servants and the bond and the bond servants. Okay, so the hired servants were of Israelite, but the bond servant, uh, they were treated somewhat different. And he was saying that they should, in verse 42, it was saying they should not be sold as bondmen. In other words, uh, Israelites could not be sold as a bondman. They could not be sold and bought. But a stranger or those who of other nations, they could be sold or bought. So that was some of the distinctions. Now, when we go down to verses uh, 40, 44 to 46, it clearly points out to us how they were to handle uh, servitude of those of other nations. It said, both thy bondman and the bondmage which thou shalt have shall be of the heathen 
that are round about you, of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. He said, you could buy them. They are not of your, your nation. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they begat in your land, they shall be your possessions. Okay? So he's making it clear that there are some things that can be done with those of the nations, the heathens or the nations that were not to be done with his people. And he, verse 46 says, And ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule over them rule over one an, over another with r rigor. Now, we notice in verse 46 and verse 43, he specifically says you, they were not to rule with rigor when it came to his people when they was in servitude. But with other nations, it was somewhat different. So when we look at uh, the question of uh, Israelites themselves being servants in Israel or any other nation, they were were they to be treated as the, as the same? No, they weren't. They were treated differently. So when we look at the difference of the treatment, they were given the covenant on Mount Sinai concerning both how Israelites were to be treated as a servant and those of other nations. Now, one of the differences between the Israelite servant and the servants of other nations is that the, the former, uh, that the former was given uh, the, when I say the former, I'm talking about the Israelites servants they were given time restraints, and the latter, which were the strangers who were taken as, uh, uh, as into servitude, they they were not they did not have any uh, time restraints. They were to be uh, in servitude forever. Now, if you were an Israelite servant, you could look forward to being freed from servitude in the year or the fiftieth year of Jubilee. However, servants from other nations were bound for life, both their generation and their generations which would follow. So in other words, if they had children as uh, slaves, those, sla those children of other nations would continue to serve as slaves even after uh, the parents may have died. And when the children's children had children, they were also to be in servitude. So those are some of the distinctions. So the question is being asked, if non-Israelites took to themselves servants from Israel or any other nation, should they treat them like Israelites treated their servants? So when we deal with this type of question, let us consider from a multifaceted approach. We have to look at it at different ways. When we deal with nations outside of Israel, we must take in mind 
we must we must take in mind that these nations weren't under the same covenant laws as were Israel. Therefore, it stands to reason that the nations which surrounded Israel would not be subject to the same requirements. At this juxtaposition, let us do something both basic and fundamental in asking the question as to how the nation should treat those in servitude. Because remember that in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, when it talks about if we break Elohim's covenant, that we would be scattered. And it also talks about the mistreatment. And when we look at the mistreatment of many of the slaves here in America, we wonder, did the slave master have the same set of laws to treat uh, Elohim's people as did the Israelites? And so we want to look into that. Did they... Did they have the same mindset? Now, we already discussed something about the uh, slave Bible, that they took out all of the things pertaining to slavery and everything that they felt was positive about what they were doing to slaves, they kept in the Bible. But things that they shouldn't have been doing to the slaves that the Bible says they took out of the Bible. But we want to try to get uh, handled on this by understanding what was required of other nations when they had slaves, both of Israelites and maybe non-Israelites. So let us return to the beginning of creation, whereby we previously pointed out that Elohim never gave man dominion over another man, but rather over the earth and over the resources along with the fish, the fowl, and the living creatures. So let us turn uh, to Genesis chapter 1, and we want to look at verses 26 and 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. We want to revisit this because we wanna, we, we're trying to establish a principle here. Okay, in verses 26 and 28 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, in verse 26, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So, so here we are seeing the dominion that he has given them. And thus far, when we read in his dominion, we didn't read anything about the dominion of having uh, dominion over another man. It's not in there. Okay, let's read verse 28 of the same Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28 says, And Elohim blessed them, and Elohim said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living creature that moveth upon the earth. So Adam and Eve, they were only given dominion over the earth, over the earth. So when we consider the fact that before Israel came into existence through the line of Isaac and Abraham, Yah had already expressed his will concerning persons' relationship to one another. That was already established. They were not to rule over one another. Now, if from the beginning of creation of man and woman, they weren't to rule over one another, would 
Elohim changed his position on this after sin entered into the situation. Okay. Now, would he change after after telling them who to rule over and what to rule over? Would he now change his position once sin came into the world? Okay. Let's let's go to Genesis three sixteen. Genesis chapter three and verse sixteen. Now, this is after the entrance of sin into the universe, into our world of existence. Now, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Okay. Now, remember, he said they were to have dominion over the earth and over everything upon the earth. Now he is saying after sin entered, he said now uh, he's going to make the woman's desire to her husband, and he shall rule over thee. Okay. Now, where it says that thou desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, in one passage of Scripture, we are told that Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the earth, and in this other passage, Genesis 3.16, he is now saying that the man is to rule over the woman. Now, is there a difference between having dominion over all of the earth and a husband ruling over his wife? So let us look up these two respective words and see if they mean the same or are they different. Okay, now, when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and verses 28 and 26, the Bible uses the word dominion. It uses the word dominion. In these two respective texts comes from the Hebrew word radah. That's R-A-D-A-H, radah. The word dominion comes from the word radar, and it carries the meaning of to rule or to tread down. That's what it means, to rule or to tread down. Now, when we consider Genesis 3.16, and the word that is used in this text comes from the Hebrew word marshal, marshal, and it carries the meaning of to rule. So, radar, which is dominion, means to rule or to tread down, but marshal, the word rule over the woman, was the type of meaning just to rule. So, what is interesting about these two words is that they both means to rule. They both mean to rule. Radar means to rule, and marshal means to rule. Now, the word Masha is spelled M-A-S-H-A-L, okay? So we got both the words, dominion, rada, aura, A-D-A-H, and we have Masha, which is M-A-S-H-A-L. So both of them mean to rule, but the word rada means to tread down, However, radar, from which we get our word dominion, also means to tread down, whereas the word masha merely carries the meaning just to rule. 
it appears that Radha not only means to rule, but in addition to ruling, it also carries the understanding that one can tread down. So when we think in terms of treading something or somebody down, it appears that one can use harsh and brutal means to do so. So when we compare and contrast these words, they both means to rule, but dominion means to do so with harshness, whereas the rule, which is in the other definition, appears to be of a different and a much more pleasant type of rule. Consequently, what we have is a harsh type of rule and a mild type of rule. When we consider that, when Elohim said to Adam and his wife to have dominion over the earth, they were to use harsh measures to deal with the earth, plants, and animals which roam it. However, when it comes to Adam ruling over Eve, his wife, there is the word to rule, which is void of any harsh rulership. So when we look at the rulership that Adam was to have over Eve, it was not a harsh dictatorial rule. It was a mild, pleasant, humane rulership that he would have. So what is interesting is that when Elohim instructed Moses about how to treat their slaves, he specifically forbade them to use the harsh manner. Okay, now let us turn back to Leviticus 25. Okay, in Leviticus chapter 25, we want to look, go back to verses 43, 46, and 53. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 25, verse 43, notice what it says. In verse 40, 43, it says, And thou shalt not rule over him with rigor. That's what the Bible says. Don't rule with rigor. Okay. Now, in verse 46 of the same chapter, it says, at the latter part of the verse, it says, Ye shall not rule one over another with rigor, okay? And then when we turn to verse 53 of Leviticus chapter 25, 53, it says in the latter part, and the other shall not rule with rigor over him in thy sight. Now, this word rigor that is used three times in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 43, 46, and 53, this word rigor comes from the word, word ridah. And right now you remember that ridah was only used on the earth. And so Elohim is saying, even when you rule my people, you are not to use ridah. You're not to use that. You're not to have dominion. That was reserved for, for us over the earth, but not over other human beings. So even if Adam was to rule over his wife Eve, it wasn't a harsh dictatorial rule, but rather a humane type of rule. So this rule that he had over his wife was not radar to push her around or to mistreat her, because Elohim three times said here that even among his own people, they were not to even use that type of rulership. Now, furthermore, what we can draw from the words dominion and rule 
is that the word Radah was to be used to rule the earth and Masha was to be used to rule over people. If we say that Adam was to rule over Eve with a humane sense, even so were Israelites kings to rule their empires. It was to be a martial rule rather than a radar move, uh, a, a, a radar rulership. We can see from this that Adam and Eve were not the only ones to experience this humane type of rulership. But it was also to exist between kings, princes, priests, and heads of families. So often it is looked upon that the rulership Adam would have over his wife was limited to them, when in actuality it was not a rule that was to go beyond just a, it was a rule that was to go beyond the marital status. It was not just Adam and Eve or Adam ruling over Eve this way, but Elohim designed that his kings, his priests, and every, everyone that would rule in Israel, they should also have Masha. They should have a, a humane type of rulership. So even after sin entered into this world, the type of rule that Yah advocated was that of a humane or compassionate rulership. However, this type of humane rulership was not always practiced by other nations who took Israelites as slaves. What we must understand is that these humane laws and statutes weren't given to govern the other nations. They were given to his people from the beginning before Israel was established as a nation. As the family of Adam increased, they also drifted away from Yah's covenant. Adam's first, Adam's first son, Cain, we are told, went out from the presence of Yah. Now let us go to Genesis chapter 4 and, and, and verse 16. Genesis 4, 16 tells us this. He says here in the 16th verse of, uh, of chapter 4, he says, And Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Okay. Now, when we look at that, that was the first son. And when he talks about that he went out from the presence of uh, Yah. He is establishing a family line which was not in harmony with Yah's will. How Adam, however, Adam had a third son after Cain slew his second son, Abel, and his name was Seth. And it was through Seth's line uh, that Yah would again establish his covenant. Because when we read in uh, Genesis 5, 3, it says, and Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and he begat a son in his own likeness and after his image, and he called his name Seth. And in the same 24th verse, we find uh, also that uh, as you follow the line, many of these individuals, they walk with Elohim. And the Bible says, and Enoch walked with Elohim, 
and he was not, for Elohim took him. So in other words, what we are looking at here, uh, Cain developed an ungodly land, but through the land of Seth, the third son, he is establishing a land of righteousness. Okay. Now, when we look at Genesis, let's go to Genesis chapter 7, and we want to look at verses 22 to 23. Okay. Now, the Bible says, it says, let me see, I had, uh, uh, I had 22 to 23, but that, 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 let me see. Okay. Okay. Let's look at uh, Genesis 7, chapter 22 and 23. It said, and, and in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things, and the fowl of heaven and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So when they had the great deluge and the great flood, uh, they were all destroyed on the earth. Okay. Now only Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were preserved during the flood. From these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it was Shem's land which would follow the covenant which was given to Noah. From Shem's land came Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was under Jacob's whose name was changed to Israel that the nation of Israel came forth. And from Moses was given the covenant of Yah on Mount Sinai, and it was not given to the other nations. It was given to his people. It wasn't. It wouldn't seem reasonable to hold other nations accountable to what he gave to them. So what we're going to find as we study is that other nations was very brutal. Elohim had told them about this, that they would be if they broke his covenant. This does not mean that Elohim endorsed other nations to mistreat slaves. He didn't. He didn't intend for that to be, but he is saying, if you break my covenant and I'm going to scatter you and you're going to go into the hands of other people and these other people are not following my covenant and you're not following my covenant, what would you expect if you broke my covenant and then another nation took you and put you in servitude, then you knew my covenant and broke it. They didn't know my covenant. How would you expect to be treated? So what we're looking at is a treatment that Elohim people received from their own people that Elohim told them how to deal with. And now we find in slavery that as we approach more and more to the up-to-date slavery that we are dealing with, we'll find that we are being mis mistreated in such a way that the nations are not adhering to how Elohim wants us to be, be treated, but they're going to treat us the way they want to be treated because they did not have the covenant, and we do. So we're going to conclude at this point, and then we'll start up uh, next week at another point.
Wow. That, um, wow. <laughs> um, that is something. Um, so there's a certain standard that mm. Yah said if you was to take his people into servitude that they were supposed to be treated. Mm-hmm. Right. You so that all out. Yeah. So if you go against that, I would think that's going to be a harsh punishment for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. You know, get some retribution for that. Yeah. So I just wonder like right now, um, are his chosen people right now, are they a form of a protection right now for other nations? I'm here I'm hearing you, but I'm not I'm not sculpturing out your question. What now re, make your question again. Okay. Um with I, I just feel like it's certain things Yah hasn't done to nations who have really oppressed his people and all. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I do believe in the second Exodus, because I think once Yah brings his children out of bondage, put them back into the land of the forefathers, then the floodgates are going to open to all of those people who had mistreated his, his servants and all. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering are we like a form of a form of protection that if as long as they're up underneath us, they know that maybe certain things are not going to happen. But once that is removed, um, it is pretty much going to be open season. Okay. So, um, so what you are saying, let me, let me see, can I capture what you are saying? Mm-hmm. You're saying that, uh, once we come into the new exodus, the second exodus, mm-hmm. uh, that we are protecting. Uh, no, that that the protection mm-hmm. will be uh, removed. That as long as we're uh, uh, okay, I, I put it, I should maybe just put it like this: like right now we're in the uh, United States, mm-hmm. and if the second the second exodus happens, he brings us out of the United States, put us back into the land of our forefathers. Mm-hmm. Only ones that's going to really be left here are the nations that had the nation that has oppressed us. Right. So I'm just wondering right now, are we like in a protection for them? But once we leave that protection is gone. Yeah. You raise it. Okay. That, yeah. Okay. Uh, you raise an interesting point. We have raised rest in point. Now, uh, one of the ways I'm going to ask you, you is this, is uh-huh. this, that's a very good point. Excellent point. Uh, in other words, once we leave uh, the United States, um, will, it, will the protection over these people who have mistreated us be removed? Uh-huh. Okay, now, yeah. I would tell anybody, anybody who studies the second exodus is to make a comparison uh-huh of the second exodus with the first. Mm, okay. And if you make the comparison see, the book of revelation is constantly, uh, talking about the second exodus, but because our schools and our seminaries 
in our Christian educational system has not taught the Bible, they 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 can't see this. Uh-huh. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it's all through the Re- Revelations, but due to the fact that we have not studied the Revelation as we should, we should be studying. That should be the main book in all of our schools. Uh-huh. And, and what do we see Exodus in the book of Revelation? Yes, we do. Uh-huh. Where do we see it? Every time they mention the word lamb, you have to go back to the Exodus because the lamb is associated with the Exodus. Mm. So every time you read the book of Revelation, they, when they talk about the lamb, this and lamb, that, mm-hmm. the lamb, they're talking about him buying you to get the blood in order for you to escape in the second Exodus, just like you did in the first Exodus. Okay, so let's look at that. In the first Exodus, when they got the blood and put it on the doorpost and they left Egypt, even before they left left Egypt, mm-hmm. what happened? They had nine. They had nine plagues. It was the tenth plague that they came out on, and that's when they had the blood. So when we compare the first Exodus to the second Exodus, then when we began to get together, and we have the slain blood of Yeshua, which is represented by the grape juice and the bread, the 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 matzo or the unleavened bread, and when our hearts is centered on him, he's going to start some plagues that has fallen. Revelation speaks about all this stuff. And then when we come out, mm-hmm. because the book of Revelation says, come out of her, my people, yeah. and be ye separate. So if that if that coming out, you have to deal with the lamb, it's talking about the second exodus. And so when, when they come out, what's going to happen? Well, in the first Egypt, they was devastated. In the second Egypt, it's going to be the same thing. Why Why would it be that way? Because when the first exodus, they came out to keep his covenant. And the second exodus, if we are keeping his covenant, he said, you don't have to worry about fighting. I'm going to fight for you. The reason why I couldn't fight for you in slavery in the other places is because you weren't keeping my covenant. And now that I got you back to my covenant, you're keeping it. Now you don't have to worry about fighting for yourself. I'm going to fight for you. Yes, truly. He is protecting them. A lot of times uh, Elohim protects others because we are there. Uh-huh. And because we're there, he said, well, I'm going to protect it. But when those presents are moved, removed, then oftentimes the curse is going to come down upon those who have been harsh with his people because his people now are keeping the covenant. And when they move on, then the retribution is going to come in. But, you know, it's just like you said, you know, the first one, they were coming out of Egypt to keep his covenant. And that's going to be the case of the second exodus. We're coming out of the current Egypt to keep his covenant mm-hmm. and all, you know, and that that's just wow. Um, Now you said Rada is to mean rule dominion over, and it's more of a harsh rulership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Masha is not a tread down or harsh rulership. No, that was uh, that was very humane, uh-huh. very humane. Just like Sarah and Abraham, very humane. Just like when uh, Yeshua says to the husband, he said, "Love uh, your wife, even as Yeshua loved the church." It was a loving rule. Just like a lot of people said, "Well, you know, uh, when they sin, he ruled over her." Now, 
Well, if that's the case that, that he ruled over, I'm saying it's the same case when kings ruled over Israel. Yeah. Yeah, the same rule. They, they were to rule with a kind uh, rulership. And, you know, it's interesting, too. You said that, I think it was a scripture that you pointed out, that we are Yah's servants. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot, mm-hmm. you know, to be to state that we are Yah's servant because I can see he feeling some type of way if these are his people and his servants for him that anybody who mistreats them, he's going to be angry about that. Mm-hmm. And I can see mm-hmm. he, that's why he was angry with our forefathers because like we're supposed to represent him and here we're doing what the world is doing, mm-hmm. you know? So when you do what the world is doing, you remove the protection and then you end up under the hands of what the world is doing. And so he can't punish the world because I'm saying his own people doing the same thing. Yeah. True. But then when you get under the world, the world going to treat you even worse. So, so if, if, if Israel comes back and keep the covenant, can y'all be more harsh of the people who do not, uh, conform to his covenant? Yeah, he can. Like uh, the Bible, Bibles. Uh, he, even Solomon said, you know, in his prayer when they was dedicating the temple, he said, "If we in a strange land and we've been, you know, taken captive, if we pray to you, even in a strange land toward this temple, will you deliver us?" And Elohim said, "I would, if you come back to my covenant, even mm-hmm. after going away. If you in a strange land, you've been scattered over the earth." Mm-hmm. He said, "If you come back to my covenant, I will hear from heaven and I will heal the land and I would." bring you out of captivity. Wow. Yeah, see, a lot of people, they're not looking at the covenant. No, you know, and and I think that's the key um, with everything that's going on. Um, Even when I look at some of these celebrities and the last saying what they think, saying, the, the thing I think they miss the most is one, I mean, they speak of God, but you miss the covenant. You miss the Torah. And without those things, to me, you don't have much of a foundation to stand on. So Mm -hmm. then these other nations can come and manipulate and do what they do to you. But if you have the covenant behind you, you have the Torah that abides in your heart. Yah is going to give you those protections. Those people cannot touch you. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter what they try and do, because nobody is above the most high. That's true. You know, but I don't know, maybe a lot of these people, they don't know. And that's the reason for we do this podcast is to educate those who know, you know. Yeah, yeah well, you see, uh, again, I'm going to point it out is that the institution of the leadership of many denominations mm-hmm. is that when you go to their seminaries, they don't teach you the covenant. No. They teach you about your religion and try to get you more in your religion. And they teach about other religions to show you where they different mm-hmm. and how you uh, are to relate to the other religions. But no seminary is teaching about the covenant. No Christian school is teaching about the covenant. No academy or Christian academy is teaching about the covenant. Mm-hmm. So when you graduate or come out of these institutions, you can't teach what you don't know. True. And if you discover it by yourself and you learn it, you can teach it. But many people, they don't even discover it on their own. So they don't know the covenant. 
And the covenant was the first thing that he established Adam and Eve with. He gave them the first covenant. And when that covenant was broken, then he gave us another covenant in order to reunite us back to Elohim. But we got to come back to the covenant. The covenant is the only thing that's going to help us to get into the kingdom. Yeah. And, and you know, I remember as a kid coming up, going to the Christian schools. I don't, and you know, being that we came up as Adventists, I don't recall when we had Bible worship, us really studying much of the Bible. It was always Jenny LNG White's writings. Well, I mean, it's nothing wrong with that. What, what I'm saying is, you mm-hmm. know, I don't come down on any church, but I'm just simply saying, you can take the seven-day Adventist, you can take the seven-day Baptist, you can take the seven-day Holiness, you can take any religion. I, yeah, I mean, it's not exclusive with seven-day Adventist. You can take any religion. Mm-hmm. What religion is teaching the covenant? True, yes. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, that's true. Um, We have a question, and it reads, where are the people going to in the second exodus? Well, according to the Bible, when they go into Exodus, they they're supposed to be going back to to their homeland. Yeah. Uh, now, many people say it's over in Jerusalem, but right now, uh, Jerusalem that they say is Jerusalem. Um, a lot of scholars are saying, I don't think that's the place because when you go to the welding wall over there, uh, what you see is stone upon stone over there by the welding wall. Mm-hmm. And many of the uh, people who have studied that geographical location of where the welding wall is and where the Jews come and they kind of shake their bodies and as they as they pray and put little uh, writings in the wall of their prayers, they are saying that is not actually the Jerusalem temple, but what that is that has something to do with the Roman garrison. In other words, the Roman uh, garrison where they housed the soldiers was right above where the welding wall was. Mm. And they said the reason why that couldn't be the area that Yeshua was was because when he was on earth, he says not one stone of the Jewish temple was going to remain upon another. And in AD 70, when Antiochus Epithoplanes when he came to destroy Jerusalem, they say he tore that temple down so much so because Elohim had removed his 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 presence from the temple. Because you remember when Yeshua was on earth, I think it was twice, he told the Jews, he said, behold, your temple is left unto you. Because the first time he went there, they were selling doves, and he chased them out. And then it reached a point, he says, uh, the second time, he said, Behold, this is your house. This is no longer Elohim's house. So the protection was moved then, but he did give them grace. But when he prophesied, and at AD 70, when uh, Epithoplanes came through there, he tore the whole temple down. They say you could have taken a rake mm-hmm. and raked the stones across. It was so level. So how did you get a wall that was left? And Yeshua said, Every, wouldn't be one stone remain upon another. But when you look at the welding wall, you got one stone on top of another. So they don't think that's a place. They think it's another place. Now, I don't know specifically where that place is, and scholars are still looking, but I do know if we continue to follow him, he would have let us know the area in which we should go, just like he led ancient Israel when they came out of Egypt. Yeah, and I wanted uh, to, to add to that, 
in my readings and studying so far, and I remember when me and mom, we was reading, and I think it, I would have to look it up, but it's either, I think, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, one of the prophets, where it states that land is desolate right now, that since he driven us out, the land is desolate, and it will not be occupied until he bring his children back. And it, it was another verse, too, that even had read. And I don't know if these connected with the two, but I have a feeling that I think it's in the one of the apocryphal books where it speaks of the Ark of the Covenant and different th- those things that Yah put them underground somewhere and hid them. And that I guess at some point in time they will be revealed again. And I'm wondering, is that in the area that's desolate and all? And also, I think it also talks about the land that we return to in Deuteronomy 30 and all, because it talks about us returning to the land of our forefathers and all. But I I just think the area that they call current Israel, if, if Yah kicked us out, it kicked our ancestors out the first time because we polluted it, with sin and serving other gods, how can the current place of Israel that they say that's Israel is wicked? They have a lot of stuff that's going there. I would know that the most high would not approve of. So how could that place be the true place in all? Cause I would think that whatever place he would have us is still holy. That's why there's nothing there. And when we go back he, you know, I would think we would be more holy because we have to return to the covenant. We're trying to do what he says now, as opposed to living what other people have, you know, living by other nations and serving other gods now that we would be holy and be able to be on the holy ground now. But Yeah. And then the other thing you got to look at is that he said he's going to return them back to the land. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to return back to the land, it, it may not necessarily mean that you may come to Jerusalem because you remember he yeah. promised Abraham all of the land of Canaan, which was the uh, land of Ham. And that was in, uh, uh, in, the, in the covenant promise to Abraham. So it, it may be other places outside of Jerusalem that they, they, would, they would inhabit because I'm pretty sure if they come in droves uh, like they are coming, just like when they came out of the Babylonian captivity, everybody that came out from under the Babylonian rule after 70 years, they did not go back to Jerusalem. Some did and some didn't. So some might be going to Jerusalem, some might be going to other places, but they're returned to the land. Yeah. Uh, we have another question, and it reads, why do some people think Egypt is the hidden area? What, to uh, run that by me again? Uh it's a question, why do some people think Egypt is the hidden area? The hidden area? Yeah. Uh, can you I, who up, can mm-hmm. you uh, explain a little bit more what you be mean, means by Egypt is the hidden area? Let's see. since we're waiting but um yeah you know um 
and I'm I'm putting I'm still studying on the second exodus and whatnot and uh possibly, you know, where we may go. I mean, honestly I do think right now it's irrelevant. It's just like with the second coming, I think, you know, Yah has his time and all. Okay, said in like the place Yah had hidden from us. Read re, re, re what the person said. Maybe I can try to decipher. Okay, it says, Why do some people think Egypt is the hidden area like the place Yah had hidden from us? Okay, I'm going to just take your question. I, I, I'm not fully understanding it, but I got somewhat of a gist. Uh, why do people think that Egypt is a hidden area? <clears throat> uh let us consider uh, Egypt. Uh, Egypt built a lot of uh, sphinx and pyramids. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was type of thing that they really honored to dead. Okay. When a, when a pharaoh or someone died, they would take the whole family and they would take all their furniture and stuff. They would put it in a pyramid. <clears throat> and... They would lock them, uh, when the person died, they would put everything in there, even food, in the expectation of coming back, you know, to a new life. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of, uh, but I wouldn't say exactly occult, but they have a lot of occult sciences. And they also had where they had secret societies, Mm -hmm. okay? And they were very secretive in many of their rites and stuff. You had to kind of be in with them to really understand some of the things that they were advocating. This is why even today, I think they got a branch they call the Rosencrucians and the White Wings. And when you follow the Masonic Lodge and all of that, if you go down in Egypt, you'll find a lot of those hidden secrets in some of their their writings. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why they call it kind of like a secret society, Mm. not in a secret society that the society was hid from anybody, but they had a lot of rights and, and, and beliefs that that they had. And a lot of people who have studied extensively into Egypt, they, they used to call it Kemet. And yeah. Kemet was a place where they had a lot of hidden knowledge. And once you become initiated in that knowledge, then it was no longer hidden to you but it was hidden to outsiders. So that's one of the reasons why they call it, call it the hidden. Okay. All right. Hope that answered your question. If not, just uh, send us another message and we will get to it. And with that, we are going to transition to our next segment. Up next is let's talk about that. So today, and let's talk about it. We know that Yah has his laws, the government has their laws. And so I kind of want to ask some questions and dialogue in the combination of the two. So if you have your Bibles with me or you can look at the screen, if you can turn with me to Romans, the 13th chapter, and we're going to read verse one. And it reads, let every soul be subject unto higher powers. For there is no power but of Yah. The powers that be ordained 
of Yahuwah. So, uh, Pastor, I want to ask, um, now God has his laws and governments. Have governments taken from Yah's laws also to implement for laws of their land? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can. Uh, yeah, a lot of laws um, that we have in our land has been adopted from the uh, from the Bible itself. Uh, uh-huh. You know, even some of the basic laws, like uh, you know, "Thou shalt not kill," "Thou shalt not steal," and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Matter of fact, most even most religions uh, they can be Buddhist, uh, Shintoism, Taoism, uh, uh, Confucians, or uh, or, or whatever religion, even outside of the Christian faith, uh, many of these laws has been adopted by these uh, different groups and religions. Uh-huh. And when you look at the United States, when uh, they started making many of their laws, they, uh, the founding fathers of the country, you know, Jefferson, Madison, Washington, Adams, and all of them, they incorporated, you know, the Bible within m- many uh, uh, of their particular laws. Mm. And when you uh, start setting the Constitution, you know, of the United States, uh, then they may have, uh, they may not have used all of what the Bible says, but the, in order to develop the framework, they, they, they use the Bible because after all, we must understand that the reason why they escaped Europe to come over here was because they wanted religious freedom, not just to have religious freedom, but the religious freedom they were talking about was the same religious freedom that was found in the Bible. So the Bible became kind of like a foundational book in order to frame the constitution and the, the laws of United States of America. And matter of fact, if you go to Pennsylvania and they have what you call the Liberty Bell, and when you look at the Liberty Bell, the, the uh, what the Liberty Bell has on it is, I think Leviticus. It it, it talks about uh, Leviticus twenty three something that proclaimed liberty. You know, like when they proclaimed the liberty for um, uh, Jubilee, that if you were a slave or something, but on Jubilee you were set free. Mm-hmm. And on the Liberty Bell, they have the actual scripture on the bell. <laughs> which which we call the Liberty Bell. Mm. So, yeah, they predicated many of the laws based upon the scriptures that Elohim had given. Wow. Um, and so now are we to adhere to government's laws as well as, you know, Yah's laws? And do like Yah's laws trump government's laws? Well, uh, in, in, you know, well, Yah's laws does trump uh, government laws, but w- w- the way we look at it is, is that when we understand Elohim's laws, that we follow those laws, and if the government uh, uh, is not in the adherence uh-huh. to one of Elohim's laws, and we are in a conflict between whether to follow the government, if they're not following Elohim, we we they'd like to apostle uh, Peter. You know, they say we ought to obey. Elohim rather than to obey man. Yeah. So whenever man's law contradicts with Elohim's law, we have to go with Elohim's law. Okay. And sometimes there's an equality that Elohim's law and man's law are one and the same. And then it may become a time that uh, Elohim's, uh, that man's law may 
try to override Elohim's law, and this is where we would have to take a stand in what we call religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, oftentimes, when it comes to uh, punishment in a society in here in America, mm -hmm. it may be that uh, the law that Elohim has is the same law that the law of the land has. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens is then when the law of the land executes something, we have to go back because Elohim is saying, hey, that's my law as well. So we can't argue with that. That's why when you read in Romans uh, 1, uh, verse 1 in, in chapter 13, it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. He said, for there is no power but of Elohim. In other words, the government that we see that is around us is being established by Elohim himself. Uh, is this is is this is this to say that he in the judicial system where things are not going well and and should go as they should? No, he hadn't ordained a corrupt system. Okay. But what he is saying here is that the government is there and has been given power and ordained by Elohim because the higher powers are saying that those who are going against society and doing things that they should not do, that this is the very reason why you got a government mm -hmm. in order to deal with those situations that are out of hand. It is as if Elohim is saying that this is the way I would have handled it. And so therefore the government that has ordained itself is being ordained of Elohim in the sense that when wickedness break out, he can use the government to squelch it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like I would squelch it, Elohim is saying, if you were among the Israelites, you would have to stone somebody who got out of line. But since we are among the nations, he uses many of the nations to squelch the uh, crime and the fraud and the killing by using the government to do that. And therefore, he's saying, if they're in harmony with what I want, then I have ordained that government to do what they're doing. Wow. Wow. Okay. Oh, we have a question. Uh, and it reads, once a ministry becomes a 501c3 ministry with the government, doesn't that mean church and state are combined and that the ministry must abide by the laws of the government, the laws the government establishes, which may conflict with the laws of Yah. Okay. Uh, when you get to 501, but 501 3C? Yes. Okay. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's usually what we use when people go in, in, into the ministry. Okay. But you got two things going here. Number one is, uh, you got the 5013C, if you're handling a lot of money, okay, if you have a lot of money, then you can go up under there because uh, uh, many times you can be exempt from paying tax, okay? Mm -hmm. But some organizations, they are not as big and they're not handling as much money, so they, that doesn't stop them from having a church, but it just says, they may not report to the government because they may not be handling a lot of money. But if you're handling quite a bit of money, 
just like you see these mega ministries like uh, 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 T.D. Jakes, uh, uh, Joyce Myers, and stuff like that, they handling mega money. So you want to know, the government want to know where that money is going. So if you're under there, it doesn't mean that you have to pay the tax, but it does mean that you're not going to misuse the money that you are, are getting getting from the from the folk. Now, for your question as to say whether they are under the government or not. Now, this is the this is the question is, is is the government over the church or is the church over the government? Mm. And that 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 is a historical uh, situation that has come down. If you go back over to Europe, the whole thing, one of the questions that they were having is the church over the government or is the government over the church? Now, when you look at uh, uh, Gallio, Gallio, he was uh, he was of the he was of the church, but he was also of the government. And they were asking, uh, they had a question. They were saying that whatever the church says had power over the government. And when it came to their schools, this this the, the church still exercised authority over the schools. And so when Gallio says. When they brought him to court, and they was, I, I think the way, the way the story says, they asked him how many uh, teeth was in a horse's mouth, and I think he said one thing, and the and the Catholic Church said another, but uh, they they said, well, you have to take the word of the church because the church is authority over the government, mm-hmm. and so they said when Galileo walked out of court, he says, if you really want to know how many teeth in a horse's mouth, he said. You need to count them. <laughs> now, the, now the question the question is even today, who is over the who is over the government? Who is over the government? Is the church over the government or the government over the church? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you remember back a few years ago when Waco, Texas, had the Davidian branch, I know they I, I remember distinctly because. Uh, Matter of fact, they came to my home here in Michigan, where I'm living today, and they wanted to know whether Seventh-day Adventists was behind the Davidian government, uh, I mean, of the Davidian branch. And I think really was sure of some connections, but I showed them there was a, a, a great deal of difference, okay? But the fact is that they had guns down there, and the government was trying to tell them they shouldn't, I think have guns or that they shouldn't do what they was doing. But that was a that was a mistake because according to the Constitution of the United States, we are able to carry guns. I don't care if you're religious or non-religious. Mm-hmm. According to the Constitution, it's right there that you can bear arms. So they were not wrong. So what the governor did, they backed off of the Davidian branch, and then when they got their troops together, they went back in there. And the place burned down, but I think the government was wrong in that. But what I'm saying is, is that a 5013C, it does tie you in with the government, but that does not mean that the government can run run your church. Just like a lot of people say, well, if you got a 5013C and they say that you're a part of the government, and if you're a part of the government, that means that if two men or two women come and say, well, I want you to marry me, you have to do it because you got a five hundred one three C's. You tax exempt, so you got to do what the government says. No, you don't, because the government 
can only rule according to the tenets of what you teach in your church. If, mm -hmm. if that's what you teach, you can't. Even though over in Canada, when you start saying stuff like that, they said that you are anti-Semitic or, I mean, not anti-Semitic, but you are homo homophobic if you don't uh, marry two men or marry two women. Well, that's because of the laws are now changing on the books. That if you say something against somebody uh, that is, believes in same-sex marriage, that you're homophobic. That don't mean you're homophobic. Yeah. Just like if you say you're against heterosexuals, does that mean that you're hetero heterophobic? No. Yeah. But that's what they want to brand you as. And then they want to say, well, if you're going to be living in our society and you're under the government supervision, then you have to do what we say. Well, that's that's when you have to deal with your religious freedom. Because now they are saying to you, not only do you have the 5013C, but now you have to go according to the our tenants. But when I got the 5013C, at first, it was just so I can report. Now you're telling me I have to change my doctrine. And that's where you have to take a stand if they think that they're going to come in and control your church. Because the church or the government has always been above the, the, the government, this is why Jim Jones went over to Guyana. What happened? They uh, A lot of was killed and they drunk the Kool-Aid. But the reason why Jim Jones could do what he did is because he recognized that the church cannot be governed by the, by the government. It's governed, they say the church is governed by Elohim. Mm -hmm. Now what government is Elohim under? Mm. So we have to understand that when we get these 503 well, one, three C's that we are not under. We're still under Elohim. But because we're living in a society that is being exploited by religions, we may get that type of status to not say that the government is over the church, but we are just trying to be in compliance with the church, whereby other people, they may be taking advantage of the people. But by being in compliance with the government, we are saying, hey, we're treating everybody fair. We got our doctrine. This is what we teach. We're not ostracizing anybody, but we were saying if you believe what we believe, you join us. If you don't, you have to go somewhere else and, and find your whatever you, you believe. Yeah. You know, that that's one of the things I don't understand, too, is like, uh, especially in these past years when the LGBTQ community, when they either want to get married or they go into a shop that says, you know, we're not going to make a homosexual wedding cake. They want to get up in arms and sue. But my thing is this. Um, if they don't want to do it, that's their prerogative. It's going to be someone out here that will. Why do you have to be so adamant about this person marrying you? Because if, for one, why would you want someone, force someone who marry you who don't believe in that? Seem mm -hmm. like you want to have somebody marry you who believe that's okay. Because the person that you force, they're just going to be doing it either one for money or doing it out of spite. And their heart is not going to be in it. Seem like you would want to get something something that caters to that and all. Yeah, well, it seemed like they would. But it seemed, seemed like to me it, they're not even using common sense. I don't know whatever happened to common sense is if you want somebody to make a cake, and you want two women or two men on, 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 on that little statue up there mm -hmm. uh, to represent what you believe, 
Seems like common sense would say, just go in there and tell the people to make a cake, and you go somewhere and get the <laughs> thing made, and and then when you get the cake, just you put it up there. Yeah, that's true. But too. it shows that you got more of agenda than than just the cake for exactly. you to do what you're doing. Just like I hear people say, well, the reason why we want to get two men and two men to get married, you know, two women to get married, because because of our our rights. Because if we die, we want to be able to pay us on property. That don't make sense because if you live in a home. <clears throat> with a uncle, and you you and and, and and you don't have a mother and father, and you just have an uncle in the home. If they want you to have their property, you just make out your will to that. Mm-hmm. So if you got the same sex, you don't you don't you don't have to get married for to pay every own property because you are two of the same sex. You just make your will out to that, and if one dies, then the other will get the property. That's that's all it is. But it seems like it's more of a gender than just get married. Yeah. You look like you're trying to force everybody to accept what 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 you got, because the law has already stipulated that if you make your trust or your will out in a certain way, that's where it's going. Yeah. Yeah, I I do think it's it's just a thing out of arrogance. You just have it's just an agenda that wants to be pressed, you know, as opposed to, you know, anything, uh, you know, you can still do what you want to do, you know, regardless of what your orientation is, Mm -hmm. you know. Let me ask this too. uh, Do, does, do ministries need a 5013C? No, you don't, you don't, you you don't need it, but uh, what it is here in the United States of America, it's, you, uh, if you have a legal church or, you know, uh, legal body of believers, uh, mm-hmm. then you, you may want to establish that for for business purposes, you know, that that uh, it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. But there are many fellowships that they don't even have a, uh, this 501C. They just go ahead and meet. Yeah, you know, it all depends on how you see your organization. If you think that uh, it may be a problem with, uh, like when people uh, go down, they get the income tax filled out, and they say, "What church you making these contributions?" And you say, "Well, I don't, I don't, I don't we don't have a name. We just meet." Mm-hmm. Well, see, that's questionable with the government. But now, if you said you've been registered under this, then you got a legal name that uh, you can use because a lot of people might lose the church in a fraudulent manner by saying, well, they give us all these contributions here and there, and they may not really have a legitimate church, but they're getting write-offs for something that they uh, 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 maybe not doing, but they're getting a write-off for something that cannot be proved, you know. So it, 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 it all depends, you know, how you want to go. It can, it can have positive things, and it, it can have also negative things. Okay. Well, I guess if you have any more questions or comments, please feel free to email us even after the podcast. If you're watching this after we have broadcast it live at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And we will be happy to get to your questions and comments on our next podcast. So, Pastor, before we go out, can you take us to the throne of prayer? Okay. Eternal Father, we thank you again that we can meet together and commune and talk with one another and communicate some of these concerns that we have that we can get a better explanation of what we're dealing with 
Now, Father, as we continue to go throughout the Shabbat, give us the Shabbat blessing, that when this day shall have come and gone, we have been refreshed, renewed, revitalized, and recreated in such a way that we'll be better able to face another week. Thank you for each person that has taken time to listen, that I would continue to bless them tremendously along with their families and loved ones, and to be able to give them the blessings, Lord, that they stand in need. Bless those who listen, bless those who speak, and bless those who do the technology. And most of all, bless all of us who are desirous of coming back to your true covenant, that when you do come, you can find people walking and doing the things that you've given to Adam, Abraham, and all of the patriarchs and the prophets down through the ages. And then, O oh, Heavenly Father, when you take us to your kingdom, we'll continue the things there that you have given us to do here. And as we rehearse those things, we are preparing ourselves for your kingdom. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We want to remind you, we will be back next Shabbat, promptly at 1 p.m. Join us. Tell your friends about us. Spread the message for us about the science of the covenant, because we're trying to get everyone, not just the chosen people, but everyone to return to the covenant with the most high had established with us when he created this world. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at science of the covenant at gmail.com. O ye seed of Yasharel, his servant, ye children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahuwah Eliheinu. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom.